This is, this is a gift from heaven, this guy. Okay, shh. Everybody come on up. And Britt, you might want to wave there at the camera. You're, gonna, you're live right now, plus we're recording you because it's going to be hugely important. And so, okay, listen carefully. Shh, listen carefully. This is big. We have been called very clearly to the nations. That's always been our destiny. And God's told us that he wants us to be a, G, a new Jesus movement that will sweep through the nations in Jesus' family. That's very important because we can't avoid... Um, the importance of the body of Christ being connected relationally and bringing Jesus' kingdom to the nations. So we've been praying for divine uh, alliances with other brothers and sisters that have a heart for the nations. And God sent us Britt and Audrey. And we are mega blessed to have them. They're, they're coming into this tribe in a very, very big way. They're depositing huge things into us. And they've asked us to deposit huge things into them. But Britt and Audrey started Mountain Gate Ministries, uh, Mountain Gateway Ministries. And it's, a, it's set up to train uh, cross-cultural missionaries in church planting in very tough remote places. So one of the major things that Britt employs is wilderness experiences to toughen people up so they're not wussed out when it comes time to go into hard places. And so uh, Britt is very, very well trained in Nalls, in, in, in wilderness ministries, wilderness leadership. And so when he found out about Shram and about us and church planting and the big wedding between, you know, wilderness ministry and church planting and going to the nations, he went crazy, we went crazy, and now we're married. <laughs> so that's the bottom line. And so we, he was in Colorado because he's, He's loving up on his new grandbaby. And um, we said, while you're in Colorado, you need to get up to Laramie and blow us away. And he is under an anointing to impart something very important to this people. And that's why we're live streaming and that's why we're uh, recording this. There's a word of the Lord God wants to this generation and Britt's going to bring it right now. So we just, it's a very important that you just know that words have power You'll never be the same if you properly mix the word of the Lord with faith. You will not be the same leaving this place. So we're going to bless you now. Blessed is he, extend your hand, that comes in the name of the Lord. We love you, Britt. And Father, we welcome the word of the Lord through this man of God. We ask that you would speak to us directly from heaven to earth and cause us to walk in the authority that we have as believers. In Jesus' name, amen. Give that mic. Really? For that thing up there? Oh. There you go. Giving me orders already. Give him that microphone right there. Oh, I'm telling you what. Um, I have had, um, I'm kind of out of sorts this morning because Jesus has been on me since. Well, since I got saved, I understand that, but <laughs> I don't even know what I'm looking for. Uh, let's just put that right there. I'm a, I see, I can, Lord, you got to help my brain work right. It ain't because I'm tired, it's because the Holy Ghost is on me. 
And um, I want you to know that Audrey sends her greetings and her love. But any chance that we get to love on our kids and our grandkids, we take it. And that is where kind of I had to create a hole in my schedule and to come up here. And, and um, I have an assignment from heaven. But I also just love you guys better than dirt. And I'm loving the opportunity to really get to know each other. Some of y'all have read my book, so I'm at a disadvantage because you know some facts about me more than I know about you, but that's all right. I'll get you hemmed up in a corner in a minute. I grew up in Alabama. I'm just a backwoods redneck preacher from Alabama that went to Mexico and tried to do something for Jesus and tried to do something with Jesus and we stumbled in a lot of things and I'm happy about that and um, I got I had an encounter I've had a bunch of encounters with the Lord but I had an encounter with the Lord that um, kind of put me on the pathway of this whole missionary thing and I didn't know what he was talking about and that encounter happened in this state in the Yellowstone backcountry on the top of a mountain. I don't know which one it is. I don't remember, but he spoke to me. And that led me on a journey. And I understood some of the vocabulary words and what he spoke to me. And I had an encounter with God. And I'm... Struggling a little bit with my voice, and so I'm not trying to be rude sucking on this throat lozenger thing. So please, don't be offended. <laughs> but if you are offended, it's just another opportunity for you to let the life of God work in you. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I've decided that this crashing into of the love of God that I've had hanging around y'all I've decided I'm just going to be myself and so is that alright yeah. and I'm going to act like we already know each other and so I'm not completely dialed in on exactly where everybody's at but we'll catch up in a minute is that alright so if I get out of boundaries, your APES team will, will sort it out for you. <laughs> and if I happen to say anything that's like, uh, comes across to you that's like straight across, cross line contradictions, they're right, I'm wrong. Because <laughs> the Bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet and I'm not here to cause trouble, I'm here to help. So, let's jump in. At the, the, um, I do have a, a particular thing that I think the Holy Spirit wants to communicate. And um, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 11. 
It says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, everybody say now. That means in our current time frame, this side of eternity. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. But then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, everybody say in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now this reality right here has caused the body of Christ lots of trouble because we don't understand how this works too good. And we end up camping around our parts. The part that we know and the part that we master. And Jesus has his people in many places saying lots of great things. And when we park ourselves in a corner and we just get stuck in our own camp, then we get perception issues. And so the last time I was here, I talked about, what did I talk about? Oh yeah, purpose and plan. That's a great message. You should listen to it. And remember, I, I started off talking about wickedness. Remember that? Oh, I know, I know. No, I'm not about to focus on wickedness. But what is wickedness? Wickedness is twisted intent. And the enemy's a master at twisting intent. And the, one of the ways that he twists intent is that we have understood this reality in Scripture incompletely and we park in our camps and those camps or those our concentrations the thing that just sort of resonates in us that we're charged from heaven with imparting to the body of Christ we start to think that we see completely clearly so let's say Let's say those windows right there were just sort of frosted. You've ever seen kind of a milky window? And you could see things on the other side, but you could see images. And you may could like make out the outline of that car right there, but you might not be able to see which year make and model it is, but you can see it's a car. But you're missing some of the details. That's how we all really are. And this is a great insurance policy that we need each other and that we need Jesus. And we fought wars in the body of Christ because we're lost in semantics. One of those wars was the war between fundamentalists, uh, dispensational people, and people that were trying to believe in the power of God and things supernatural. And there were a bunch of great brothers that got destroyed in that war. And we were lost. And, and I started really trying to grab a hold of the issues and started trying to listen. I hear, I hear the thing you're passionate about, but what is it that you're trying to say? No, that's not what I mean. What is it that the Holy Spirit is trying to say through you 
And how can I gain from that? And so, you know, in communication, have you, how many of you have ever heard the term interpersonal gap? You know what that is? That's where two people are trying to communicate or trying to interact, and there's distance between them, and what creates that interpersonal gap is perception. Perceptions about what? What we perceive about God, what we perceive about family. Like when you say the word father, everybody when they hear that, they have a little bit different way that they define what that means. Marriage. Our country's in quite a discussion about what does marriage mean. It means different things to different people. Same vocabulary word different perspective and so when you get people together and they're trying to communicate we have this interpersonal gap and the further apart we are in the perspectives that we have the harder it is for us to to come to understanding you know how that works you have your life experiences you have your encounter experiences with God and all those things continually build a perception but this this Bible right here says now we see in part and we know in part but later we're gonna see clear now what I personally believe is that God only gives us so much revelation himself directly and then he leaves this wonderful experiment called the Brotherhood of Believers to sort out the rest. Oh, help us Jesus, right? Let me give you an example. Matthew, everybody go to Matthew chapter 16. Joshua needs your help with this, please. Matthew 16. I got a really weak voice. So Joshua's going to read Matthew 16, verse 13 through 23. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Hold on just a second. Who revealed it to Peter? The Father did. So that's divine revelation, right? Have any of you ever experienced that in your life? You've had God reveal something to you, and man, when he gives it to you, you just got it, don't you? It's like in there. And it's awesome. So then he goes on to say a few things. Now I want you to read from verse 21 down through 23. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall not happen to you. 
Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. Now, how can that happen? Has that ever happened to you? You get a revelation from God that's not complete, and then all of a sudden you get yourself in trouble with it. Do you see it? Peter took him aside and rebuked him. See, Jesus, what was happening was Peter and all the disciples already had a perspective about what Messiah meant. That was their perception. So Peter, he just voiced what was going on with the rest of the nation. Peter and Jesus had this big interpersonal gap. Peter had revelation working in his life. God revealed to him Jesus was the Messiah. The problem was Peter didn't have the up-to-date context on exactly what that meant. And when Jesus started working with him and started explaining what that meant, he didn't like, he didn't like it. It was a disruption. It was a violation of his perception and preconception of what Messiah Man, do you see that? So it took Jesus, it took life, and it took a lot of things for Peter to get his perception in line. For the interpersonal gap to migrate really close. And that exercise is where all of the bumpy stuff happens life on life. True or not true? Am I, am I close or am I really off base? Okay, so what I want to talk about today is faith. Because we all have perceptions about faith. We do not see detail for... We do not see like God sees. God's understanding and God's reality is different than ours. Fair to say or not? Right? So all of us have a different idea... Or shades of differences in what faith means to us. So what I want to happen today. Since the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 10.4. That the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they're mighty through God. To the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations. I want. In the name of Jesus, some wrong mental perceptions about God and faith to be torn down today. So that our preconceptions can migrate closer to God's reality. This doesn't mean that we don't have a relationship with him and it doesn't mean that we don't have that he hasn't been showing us things and it doesn't mean that that revelation is invalid. It's just that God as we walk through life he wants to clear the window and make it more and more clear. And the clearer it is the more details show through. Now I'm talking about not my reality and not our reality but God's reality. And you see how this works interpersonally, right? We do this with each other. We get in a conflict, and most of the time, 
It's because we have a perspective about things and the other person has a perspective about things. And sometimes, a lot of times, they don't match. And so the skill between communication is learning how to navigate that. And empathy, the ability to jump into the other person's perspective, is something that can be developed in your life. And we need that. So what we need to do is tap in with God and say, okay, I don't want to get stuck in tunnel vision and I don't want to get, I don't, I don't, you've blessed me and you, you touched me. Boy, I'm crackling with the revelation that you've given me. But let's still leave room for God to continue to give us clarity. And that's what this cross-pollination, even though it's dangerous, with the body of Christ is necessary for. Does that make sense? So, but since we all have our perception, we bring bones into this situation. You can't help but bring your perspective with you when you come because you're there. Right? So we got God and we got each other. And then when we got each other trying to communicate with each other, then God's in it too. Oh man, what an awesome thing. And I'm I'm really stoked about you guys. And your community and the way you love each other. So every time I ever heard, I grew up in church. I started preaching when I was 15 years old and ended up in Mexico as a pioneer church planter. That's what we were called. What that means is, is we went into foreign, go into foreign cultures and places that have never had a, an established, honest presentation of the gospel or certainly no roots and we see the kingdom of God begin to flourish there. And that's really cool to be, to be the first guy. To tell people about Jesus. I like that. And, but it's given me some values about things that I didn't have when I lived here. And one of those values is, is to really search for the bottom line. And to search for clarity. And so because the people that we work with are two language bases away from me from English, it's really forced me to mine and press into heaven and have a desperate dependence on God. Because I got to go from English through Spanish into their heart, which is another mother tongue. But our common denominator for both of us is a second language. Oh, help us, Jesus. Right? So I look for the bottom line. But the perspective that I brought to the table about faith, the composite of all the faith teaching that I'd ever heard in my life, left me with two basic ideas, two big picture ideas. Number one, I need to banish my doubt. And number two, I need to get more faith. I'm a bottom line thinker and... and Doubt going down and faith going up and getting more faith. Those, there's truth there and I want, I want more faith. 
The problem is the great twister, Satan, he gets in the middle of all this equation and he twists God's intent. And we've tried to articulate and we've wrestled and we come up with doctrines and we're all around the subject. And we've had all kinds of reactions to it and about it and for it. One of the hardest things to reconcile is unreconcilable tragedies. Which really is unmet expectations. And we've all had unmet expectations. Have you ever believed God and prayed for God and asked God for something he didn't give you? Raise your hand. How about, have you ever believed God and prayed and sought heaven and got something that you were really going for? Raise your hand. How many of you have ever had God exceed what you asked or thought? Wow. Isn't that awesome? Not the unmet expectations part. I don't like that too much. But I know of no other meter that shows us the fabric of our character more than unmet expectations. How about this one? Let, let me give you what I mean. How many of you ever drove through the drive-in window at McDonald's? Maybe you don't like McDonald's, but humor me. Act like you've been through the drive-in window at McDonald's if you hadn't. You go up to the drive-in window and you order a quarter pounder meal. I know it's really bad for you, but I know you've probably at least had one. <laughs> you order a quarter pounder meal. When you do, you have expectations about the quality of that hamburger when it gets in your bag in your lap. Right? You have a predetermined expectation about the way it tastes, about its temperature, about its freshness. The French fries, too. Oh, now, the French fries are really will show you the quality of your religion. If they come out cardboard cold, how about this? How fizzy is the Coke? Some people want a bunch of ice. Some people don't want any ice. My dad, he wants, he wants as much of the soft drink that he's paying for in the cup. And he gets them to give him another cup of ice. <laughs> so he gets to maximum benefit. But here's what I'm saying. Have you ever exhibited a less than stellar attitude when you got a cardboard box of fries and a cold quarter pounder out the window to the person who handed it to you. Come on now, don't stop laughing and carrying on. <laughs> Liars go to hell, you know, that's what it says in <laughs> Revelation 21.8. So you see what I'm saying is an unmet expectation. <laughs> oh, I'm not, probably not supposed to say hell, am I? <laughs> Un unmet expectations are a great thing that shows us the fabric of our character and it can give us a pulse check on where we are inside. Oh man. And this whole thing about faith, confession, belief, doubt has a lot to do with 
perception and expectations and expectancy. And there's a difference between expectations and expectancy. And how does all that work? And exactly what does it mean when Jesus is getting on to his disciples? You have little faith, why did you doubt? Because what those kinds of statements left me with was, oh man, doubt's the enemy, I got to assassinate it and I need more faith. I didn't have enough faith. Anybody ever thought about that or thought like that? So how much faith does it take to raise the dead? Let's just pick a miracle. <laughs> Sorry, that's unfair, right? We've had people get up from the dead, so I picked that one on purpose. How much faith does it take to raise the dead? Oh, man, in our minds, that's a big obstacle. But look, there's, there's, there are no degrees of impossible. Impossible is just impossible. It's not a little bit impossible and more impossible. Impossible is just impossible. It's like there's no shades of black. Black is just black. It's not like brown. There's like, you know, how many different shades of brown? But black, black is just black. Impossible is just impossible. How much faith does it take to raise the dead? Anybody answer, please? Oh, I'm so glad you fell right into the trap. I'm so happy. Thank you, Jesus. They are listening to you today, Lord. A mustard seed. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Now, why did Jesus pick that particular seed as an example? How many of you have all have ever seen a mustard seed? I mean, maybe one of those trinkets that are stuck in plexiglass that was blessed in Jerusalem that somebody sold you. <laughs> It's little bitty, right? The only place I know about where you can even attempt to qualify a mount with the subject of faith is that one. And I'm like, Lord, why don't you use an avocado seed for an example? <laughs> that's, that's, give me the avocado seed, Lord. People have told me a lot. You told me the other day, you have the gift of faith. Ah, boy, I got, that means I got a ginormous avocado seed inside me. That's the way we think, right? Comparison, perception, the devil gets in the middle. He twists. Let's look at Romans. I didn't start my timer. Somebody has to help me. If, when y'all get bored and you're worried about your roast turning into jerky in your oven at your house, just holler, shoot a spitball at me or something, and I'll shut up. I would rather, oh, we're eating here. <laughs> Is it all right if I have fun? If y'all have fun with me, then you won't be bored. It says in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accord with the measure of faith that God has given you. Now, I, I have a bone to pick with this particular translation because it uses the article the. And I've looked at this and looked at this and looked at this. I probably have a thousand hours of study on faith. And I can give you all, all the $50 words and $100 words in multiple languages. But I think the, some translations put a there. And that article A is more in, can, in line with the whole counsel of God. And the reason why A being different than D is important is because it is true. We do not all have the same measure. The parable of the talents. One guy got ten, one guy got five, one guy got one. Or, or ten, three, and one. You see, where we get off in the weeds is we concentrate on how much, how big. And we think that 10 equals more advantage than 1, but it has absolutely nothing to do with anything. And I believe that why God picked one of the smallest, most minuscule seeds to be consistent with this law of reoccurrence. God says what he says over and over and over. And it crops up in a multiplicity of ways in the scripture. It's because I'm sh me. Here's the way I see me. I'm sure that Joshua has more faith than me. That's an honest statement about Brit. But what does that have to do anything? Because... How much faith does it take to raise the dead? Can somebody answer? It doesn't qualify. I'm not saying more faith is bad. Don't go there. You see, we get caught up in comparing our perception of others and our perception of ourselves. And if God charges us with something, we immediately assess and we say, I don't have enough. Either that or we have an arrogant attitude and we think, I got this. Right? Let's look at this in, in Matthew. How am I doing? Am I doing all right? Are y'all with me? Have I lost you? Is it helpful? Okay, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 verse 13 says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Did I talk about this when I was here? Boy, I got this weird thing going on right now. 
<laughs> oh boy. 45 minutes. That's unfair. No, no, I'm just kidding. You have here only five loaves. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. He directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So if there's anything that a leader can tell you is that those he leads have flawless abilities to pick out problems. That's what the disciples did. There's a problem. I don't see no grocery stores out here and there's a whole bunch of folks and they're hungry. And, what, and the problem I see, I don't see a solution right here. So we don't come up with a solution to fix the problem. Right? The deal is Jesus has a different perspective of how to fix problems than we do. So we can see the problem. Finding problems, we probably like almost 100% on our discernment. <laughs> it works good, man. Is that true or not true? Y'all with me? We can find the problem. And, boy, we can come up with a solution. The deal is, you know, maybe this happened a hundred other times where there was a bunch of crowds and Jesus said, okay, y'all go to the restaurant. I ain't feeding you. But that ain't what he said. And we don't know about those because this dynamic he wanted to give us and this one made it into the book that will never pass away. You see, he said... They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And what was their response? We don't have enough. Was it true? Yeah. Can. How, many, how much was it? Can, can two fish and five loaves feed, in all probability, at the very least, 10,000 people? Because they were only counting men. No, nah, that can't happen. Impossible is impossible is impossible. They pooled their resources, and between them all, they said, we don't have enough. Have you ever had God ask you as a group to do something, and you went, ah, all of us together, this is all we have. We've got to rethink this and come up with another solution. But Jesus is wanting to say to us, Whatever you have right now is enough. It's not about amount. It's about something else. And I want you to... I'm going to say this. And I want you to remember it. In every interaction between us and God. There is embedded in that interaction. An opportunity to respond to Him. You see what was God doing? What was He after? He was after this. Verse 15 says... Bring it to me. 
The little that you have, just bring it to me. So this takes the pressure off of, I don't have, so I need to study. I need to, I need to get more anointing. I need to have more encounter. Who I am now is not sufficient. It's a lie from hell. Who you are now is sufficient. God loves you now. He sees you in a way that you don't see yourself. You are equipped now. Oh yeah, I know. Abilities, eh, they're overrated. What you have in you right now is enough. Enough for what? For whatever. Second Peter says that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. Not sometime in the future. Now. Now you have it. How come? Because Jesus... Whatever it is that you don't have, he fills up that gap. Isn't that good news? But the devil wants us to say, you want me to do what? That person is sick. That person's dead. That, person's, that person was born in a wheelchair. That person was born deaf. You want me? What? I don't. I, I'm never. I don't have the anointing, Lord. I don't have the level of expertise. I don't have the authority. That's the way the enemy wants us to think. Stop thinking that way because what that does is that traps us into comparison, comparison, comparison. Jesus wants you to preach. You think, I can't do it because I'm not Reinhard Bonnke. All he wants... Is what you do have. He puts no expectation on you to have something that you do not right now. Now, don't think I'm saying that there's not room for growth and transformation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying stop comparing yourself with what your perception is about others or a given situation. In every interaction between us and God there is embedded in it an opportunity to respond to God you give them something to eat I don't have enough hey bring me what you have then and so what did Jesus do he took the little that they had he blessed it and I I got a you're a doctor of I don't know what, theology or ministry or something, right? So I got a bone to pick with whoever, whoever put this title in here. And I can gripe about this because this little title is not inspired. It says Jesus feeds the 5,000. He ain't the one that did it. His disciples did it. By Jesus' power, granted. But Jesus didn't go hand out the fish and the bread. Who did it? From whose hands did the extraordinary flow? Jesus wants us to come to him like we are with the little that we have without feeling pressure. I got to go to school and get the degree, quote unquote, in life. I got, I got to get preparation first. I got to get training first. I'm not against any of that. We have to engage in that over time. 
But in the punctiliar action that he's demanding, the moment that he says, you do something about it, you can't go, I'm not equipped yet. Oh, that's what the devil wants you to think. That's the twisting. Do you see it? So this should be good news. Whatever you have is enough. Everybody say, my little is enough. My little is enough. I'm not a negative person. Intrinsically, I'm a positive person. My wife is utterly the most incredibly positive person I've ever met in my life. Come on. Right? Let me read you something if I can find it. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness. Everybody say weakness. Weakness. And fear. Everybody say fear. Fear. I'm so glad Jesus put this in there because I have felt weak and fearful more times than I can count. And do you know I've gotten rebuked more times that I can count also that I should have a positive confession. That I shouldn't think those things about me because God doesn't see you that way and there's a truth there. But what I want, what I'm after is, you see he, you see how he felt. Paul. Paul by no means was weak in authority or anointing. But he saw himself that way. But what did he do? He stepped forward with whatever it was that he had. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. That means everything that we can know and learn about faith and gain and growth and everything. It comes from proximity to Jesus. Faith can grow, yes. But don't fall for the lie that I will if my faith grows to a certain point and I'm not there yet. You're there now. You're there now. You're there now. Who you are now is sufficient. The God deposit you have in you right now is enough. Because how much faith does it take to raise the dead? Can somebody tell me? I blew the mic up. That's right. No longer is it the faith of a mustard seed and attached with it is, what does that even mean? I don't know that. I don't understand. I don't have enough teaching. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. Now you have already demonstrated that the Holy Spirit is working in you and you changed your thinking. How much faith does it take to raise the dead? Whatever I have inside me right now.
So I, I, I just have to do this. Uh, golly, I cannot think. <laughs> that means I'm not supposed to, doesn't it? What chapter was I in? Matthew 14. No, I'm not going to keep going. Here's what I'm going to do. In that chapter right now, maybe in just a second. You see, God did an extraordinary thing in my life. I'll tell you a story. Those of you who read the book, you know. I got healed of blindness when I was 19 years old. I'm really thankful. I'm happy about that. I'll prove it to you. You got, you got some kind of different variant color green plaid shirt on. Y'all see that? Y'all see what I see? I can see. I remember the day my sight came back. I will never forget it. It's just really awesome. So don't bother talk, t trying to convince me that God don't heal today. Man with experience is not at the mercy of a man with an argument. That's how it goes, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. What do you have if you take the power out of the gospel? Just philosophy. I am not a convert to philosophical Christianity. I know a bunch. Nor is my relationship with my belief. My relationship is with the Lord Jesus and what I believe comes from him. So, when I was 19, I had a personal, I had this personal thing happen in my life. And I had an encounter with the Lord when I was 11, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit in the woods outside my house wandering around and he claimed my heart. And I knew that I had to minister full time. I just didn't know what that was going to look like. So you fast forward till I was 19 years old. Or actually, I was 18. I was a senior in high school. And I, and, and I had to decide, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I was causing trouble in my local church. Out of control, raw voltage. And uh, you can't imagine that, can you, brother? And uh, my poor pastors were... Had a handful trying to figure out how to pastor me. But they had an opinion. And that opinion was, you should go to Bible school because it's obvious you got a call in your life. Well, that, that appetized my, that energized my emotions about much as going to a cemetery. I did not want to, that's the last place I wanted to go. I'd rather stick needles in my eyes than do that. But, out of deference to the, I wanted to listen to counsel. So my parents, they drug me around the country. And my brother, he, he, he played football at Auburn University. And he wrestled. And he was my hero. But he also went to Bible school. And so I talked to him. I, I knew what his Bible school was like. And I went and looked at ORU. And I went here, there, and everywhere. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh. This is like eating ashes. <laughs> For me, Right? It's not a fit for me. I'm not against Bible school. Just me and that equation then. And I was, uh -uh. Finally, the Lord spoke to me. I want you to go to Auburn. Boy, that excited me because you cut me on the civil side of things. 
I bleed orange and blue. And if you don't know, that means that's our colors, right? And so, even though we choked week before last. <laughs> but we did really good yesterday. I was actually on the football team at Auburn for a little while. And I went blind, and that's kind of hard to play football when you're blind. Look at me, you know, I'm, I'm heavier than I used to be, but I'm not that heavy. And so I weighed 160 pounds with all my pads on. <laughs> I was a kicker, so you don't have to be really big and heavy to do that. But anyway, y'all, there's too much love in this place. What was I saying? So I went there. God put me on this path. And he told me, at the end of my first quarter, he laid out the roadway that I'm still on. I've been, I've been chasing the step. I've been walking out the steps that he laid out for me for my ambassadorship since that moment. And he told me, when he told me that, he said, okay. Basically, he was saying, you've had a really dream of a life. You've never really had anything that your faith has had to exercise itself against. Faith cannot grow without a problem to exercise itself against. That's what he told me. And I went, what does that mean? He did not define for me what that meant. But he told me. So, you decide, son, how you're going to react. Two weeks later, I went blind. And I had a genetic disease called macular dystrophy. I went totally blind in my left eye, and I was going blind in my right. And this was not a blessing of a prospect. And they told me, there's nothing we can do. And I stayed that way for four months, and Jesus healed me. And I'm happy about that, right? I told you that. But that, what happened to me in the middle of that, instead of me, the thing that I thought, and this is honest, to goodness, the thing that I thought was, I'm never going to get to see the mountain again. That bothered, that's what bothered me the most. And so I threatened God. I said, God, if, you, if I don't get my sight back, I'm going to start preaching all full time right now. He knew that would have been an unmitigated disaster, so he healed me. He had, to, he, he, he had to save the world from me at 19 years old as a full-time preacher. Oh. <laughs> but that started me thinking about problems in a different light. Because my relationship with God and my prayer life and everything, that struggle, that problem that I had, it drew out of me a deep seeking. And it, it caused one of the most distinctive milestones in my life. And it's very precious to me. And the result that I got spiritually out of that, I would way rather not see. And have the quality of intimacy with Jesus that started out of that. That's the thing that means the most to me in life. And that's the energy and the love that drives me 
to help people connect with that. There is nothing else. And so, <laughs> uh, fast forward a bunch of years, and I had, I got healed. I started praying for people, and I started seeing blinded eyes open slowly, one at a time. And, and when, I, when I first started full-time in the ministry, I told everybody else's story. And I, I can tell a story, and I can and make people think, even though it doesn't matter how much you qualify, if you're really telling a story and you got enthusiasm and intensity, people look at you like, you are the anointed one. And I, I wasn't, I, I mean, I couldn't pray. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't anointed worth spit. Everybody I prayed for stayed sick. But I didn't care. I stood up and started telling about the power of God. And I told about my own healing until it's, it, 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 there ain't no way to wear out a testimony. But if, if it was possible, I wore mine out. And then slowly, I looked behind me and stuff started happening. <laughs> that, I'm a, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's some kind of mistake, that stuff that's happening. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and that, that, that background thinking didn't get adjusted until July of this year, laying right over there on the floor. So this building is one of my most favorite places. And I appreciate you for letting me come here. And I'll try not to, to cause too much trouble. <laughs> so I get in this, this, the ministry that I got associated with is called Freedom Ministries, led by a man named David Hogan. If there is one thing that is on that ministry, it is the spirit of might. It's real, it's true. There have been hundreds of people raised from the dead. It's, it is just amazing, raw power. So that was my context, right? And we win. And faith is involved with miracles and the power of God and signs and wonders, right? You know how that works. It's like up in there somewhere. The problem is I had a broken... I had an, let me say this, I had an incomplete revelation about faith inside me. And with that incomplete revelation, started to see hundreds, it grew into thousands of people getting healed. But my sister, so there were four of us. I'm the youngest, so there's two boys and two girls. I and the baby in our family. And so my brother's the oldest, and then there's two sisters. And then I'm the youngest. My closest sibling was six years older than me, and her name was Kathy. And Kathy, we got the message about Kathy that everybody fears. She ended up with breast cancer. And I started off in that fight that contention for her life, we got this. Confidence. My confession was right. 
I really did not perceive doubt. It wasn't, it wasn't in me. I just, man, I'm ready, fire, aim. You know, when in doubt, charge. I mean, that's just me. Kill the devil. Hammer in one hand, sword in the next. You know, the word of God is a hammer. It's also a sword, and I'm going to cover both sides. <laughs> so she did the thing. You know how it is. Any of those, those of you who have this equation, you know how it works, right? It's, you go through the treatment. The treatment's terrible. Bad is the disease. I hate it. I hate cancer too. It's not from God. It's from the devil. She went through the treatment. She went into remission. Yay. Ha. See there. Problem is it came back. And it did that cycle for 12 years. And by the 12th year... I wasn't so confident anymore. Can you identify with that, anybody in here? (laughs) And I was preaching a revival for this crazy man who gave me his pulpit on Easter Sunday morning. So I was preaching Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And that... That's really, that's a crazy man that'll give a guest speaker, especially this guest speaker, the pulpit on the most distinctive Sunday of the year. We are dear friends now, that crazy man. And on Wednesday of that week, my brother, Trey, who, uh, he called me and he said, you got to get over to Birmingham. That was 45 minutes away. Kathy's had, she has to have emergency open heart surgery. There were complications. All kinds of problems. I won't go into that. Her body was a mess. The cancer got in her bones. It got everywhere. You know the story. So I drive over there. I got to preach that night. I drive over there. I, I, get, I, get, I come up into the hospital room. I'm walking down the hallway. The hallway that has the OR, the operating room in it. And my dad... There's a bunch of people standing in a crowd in the hallway. And my dad is trying to get into the operating room. He's fighting two orderlies and the hospital chaplain. You know, you know what that means when the hospital deploys a chaplain? That's not good. Right? <laughs> I hate these things. And so, I'm looking, there's four preachers in the crowd, pastors, different backgrounds. There were 30, about 35 people there. There was a, like a family room or whatever across the hall. I said, we ain't doing this. We are not going to stand in the hall and stare at the ground. Everybody in this room. That's my gift of mercy working. (laughs) We all piled up in the room and I said, look here. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to call out to God for my sister's life. And while she draws breath, it is God's will for her to live. And there is no other option, period. 
And if you, and they were Baptists, they were Presbyterians, there was a Nazarene pastor there. They were, my sister had an amazing impact in the city because of her fight with cancer, and she did all kinds of stuff citywide. There was 1,200 people at her funeral. Anyway, so here we are. We got up in there, and I said, I don't want any of those if it be thy will prayers. Them prayers kill people. You, if you can't ask God to heal my sister, get out of the room. That's not very loving, really. It depends on which direction you're thinking about that. That's a whole lot of love pointed at my sister and my niece and my parents. So, no, nobody left. We all prayed. The surgeon walked in. I don't understand it. But, well, what we didn't know is she died on the table. She was dead when I walked down the hall. God did a miracle. She came back to life. But she wasn't healed. So what am I doing? Bringing her back to more pain and suffering? It wasn't me. I mean, you understand. That's just my thinking. She stays. That was in April. December, she dies again. This time we were not in Birmingham. We were in Atlanta. We prayed. We were just praying, praying. You know how it is. You know how it is, right? You just navigated one of these yourself. You're just praying, calling out to God. That time, my sister saw Jesus, and she asked Jesus, Can I have some more time with my daughter? She said, Yes, you can. Boom, she came back to life. She stayed alive three weeks, and the third time she stayed dead, she died and she stayed dead. Well, something went out of me when she died. And I became buffaloed with God. And it, it kind of mixed itself up with all this feeling of failure and not, being, not having the anointing and all this stuff and all the exams in school that I failed because of my dyslexia and on and on and on and on. The way I saw myself, right? So I said, I failed my sister. I failed my niece. I failed my mom. I failed my dad. My niece was 15 years old, and it was really hard on her. It was really turbulent in her life. You know how that goes, right? So, one year later, I find myself in this village. I did not quit. I did not give up. I did not get bitter. Because I don't believe in getting bitter. I believe in getting better. And who is it that determines that? We determine that. We determine whether we get bitter or better. There's no such thing as something that makes us bitter. We make ourselves bitter. If we go there. And so, in the interest of not getting bitter, I still have to follow orders from heaven in my assignments in Mexico. And that's really hard. So I go back down there. And I said, okay, blindness, I'm good for that. Man, let me, let me have some sinners. I can talk them in, you know, I can introduce them to Jesus. I know the plan of salvation. I'm good for that. My confidence is high. But I'm a failure with cancer. God, I'm sorry I failed you because whatever it is in this 
this equation between God and man and the partnership that we have. I just don't have it. And um, <laughs> so I go to Mexico and I'm hoping against hope. I hope I don't run into somebody with cancer. Well, a year later, I hike down into this canyon, 2,000 foot deep, where we live in Mexico and where we raise our kids. It's a rainforest. It rains between 150 and 200 inches there, and it's very mountainous. And there's lots of jagged, really steep, lots of vertical rise. Not a lot of high altitude, but a lot of deep, deep rises. And so I heard about this sick guy. And his, his cousin said, can we go pray for my cousin? He's sick. Well, I got excited. And why did I get excited? Because sickness is our best evangelist down there. And so I'm excited about it. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Well, remember how God started working on me that problems are opportunities. Everybody say that. Problem or opportunity. Faith has to have a problem to exercise itself against. And so here we are. I'm like, yeah, high degree of probability this guy's going to understand his need for help. A little bit easier. When you need help, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier for you to understand that you have a need, right? So I go there. I'm in this dark hut. I'm sitting there. When we got in his house, he was really weak. He barely could get up off his bed, and his bed was just cut boards. He weakly got up, he sat himself in the chair, and he could barely talk. And the bottom part of his jaw, his mouth wasn't moving. He was just kind of talking like that. And I got his story. I asked him, did you, did you go to the doctor? Yeah. Well, what did they say you had? Me dijeron que tengo cancer en mi garganta. Anybody know Spanish? They told me I have cancer in my throat throat cancer when he said that I became the world's greatest failure you ever felt that way utterly incapable you don't know what to say you don't know what to do inside I died all the stuff about my sister all stirred up and I'm like you sent the wrong guy here God I can't do this Brother David should be here. Jose Marcos should be here. Jody should be here. Anybody but me. They, they're, not, they're not strapped with my failure. But I'm looking at this guy. And the greatest reality took over. He's fixing it. I know he's going to die. And if he dies, he's going to go to hell. I've got to get him saved. So I went to work. And... I'm trained to proclaim the power of God with salvation because that's what I believe. I didn't stop believing that. Healing was purchased at the cross. It's embedded in redemption. So you know what I did? I told him about Jesus. I told him Jesus could heal him. And I gave him a bunch of stories of people that had been healed. And you know what? After my sister died... We had people that I prayed for that were healed of cancer, but there was always other people there. And I always said, 
It's somebody else's anointing. I didn't contribute to that. But I was obedient and I laid my hands on it, on him. This guy had a tumor on his neck. See this hand right here? This hand knew he was going to die. That don't sound like a very champion of faith, does it? I knew he was going to die. So I laid hands on him anyway. Why? Because the Bible says lay hands on the sick and they will recover. But I was staring down the barrel of a failed, an incomplete revelation about faith. Just like Peter had an incomplete revelation about what Messiah meant. Because I thought I didn't have enough. And I thought the, the whole answer was, if I have any doubt, I can't win. Well, I got nothing but doubt today. I know he's going to die. I don't believe he's going to die. I know he's going to die. I could see his tumor. But I laid my hands on his neck and asked God to heal him anyhow. And I set it up to go back down there three days later, fully expecting to have to face. They got saved. He and his wife got saved. Yay, right? Thank you, Jesus. But what am I going to do when I go back three days later and he's dead? Now I got to talk to his wife and his, his little girl's going to be an orphan and his parents. They're not, that would be awkward, don't you think? That's hard. I was fully prepared to do that, but we're supposed to get on a problem and stay with our brothers, stay with our sisters. We see stuff through no matter what happens. So I stirred myself up. I went back down there. Man, he came up to the door that day. That was on a Friday. Wednesday, I prayed for him. He came up to the door, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's supposed to be dead. He's standing there, and he's in the shade, and I can't see real good. And I'm like, well, he looks a little better. I get up in there. He's sitting in the same old blue broken plastic chair. They're talking. He gives me a story. I'm trying to see. I'm looking at him. I'm going, man, he's talking better. He's more energetic because, you see, he had lost 20 kilos of weight in the previous nine days. How much is that? That's 40 pounds or something, right? They don't weigh but 120 pounds to start off with. Couldn't eat solid food for three months. It's only taking water by the spoonful. But he's like more lively and kind of moving around. I'm looking and, and he's real stoic. They're real stoic. They don't get excited. And he says, yeah, Wednesday night about... It was actually Thursday morning really early. About 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. I'm like, you woke up? What woke you up? I thought he was going to say this terrible pain hit me or whatever. And I'm, gonna, and I'm, I'm preparing the mental, mental, mental jockeying, you know, to try to figure out what to say to him, how to encourage him and, 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 and without, you know, without depressing him because I know he's going to die. <laughs> he said, no, hunger woke me up. Hunger woke you up? He hadn't, been, he hadn't felt hungry in three months. And I'm thinking, that's a good sign. That's not a bad sign. Something starts stirring. 
and sad. Right? He woke his wife up. He, he sits up in the bed and he realizes his throat's not hurting anymore and he got to feeling around. And he said, look. That tumor that I was sure going to, I had the faith in the fact that he was going to die. That's what doubt is in this situation. That's what it is. Doubt is just faith working in the opposite direction of God. That's all it is. You can't banish your doubt. If you banish your doubt, you get rid of your capacity to believe, and that's not going to happen. So, I'm like, it was gone, y'all. It was gone. It was not there. And it was not because my confession was right or my emotions were right or even my belief. I know, I know. That's, it's like stomping on preconceptions, isn't it? Good. You know how courage works? Is courage, is true courage, does that mean... That there's no fear present. Courage is not absence of fear. What is it? It's doing the right thing in the face of the fear that you have. And doubt and faith work exactly the same way. Exactly. When Jesus said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What he's saying is in the wrestling match between faith and doubt. Why did you let doubt get on top? You can't get rid of it. I tried. I know a bunch of people that have raised the dead and they all deal with this. I know hundreds of people that live in the most glorious, amazing, supernatural life. And they all still deal with doubt. I've not talked to one honest person, no matter how long they've walked on this earth with God. And they not deal with the doubt-faith equation. And the devil's gotten all up in the midst of it, and he's twisted that against us. And when I realize that doubt is just faith working in the wrong direction, or how about this? Faith working with the wrong perspective. It transformed the way I started seeing problems. He healed that guy. And I ceased to be buffaloed inside about everything because you know what? I realized uh, what I had was enough, even though when I felt in a moment that I had zero. But that's not true. How come it's not true? Because the Bible says, we just read it, that God has given everyone a measure of faith. At any moment. It can go. The direction that it's pointed can change at any moment. If it goes away from God, we call that doubt. If it goes toward God, we call that faith. Capacity to believe. That makes sense? So God has the nerve to tell me, okay, now I want you to explain faith to him. You just blew my faith doctor and all the smithereens, God. Now, how am I supposed to explain it to him? I'm looking at his idol table. I'm closing with this, in case you're wondering. 
Amen. I'm looking at this guy's idol table, and there's 25 idols on it. Right down here on the floor in front of the table, there was a bag full of corn seeds. He's a subsistence farmer, and corn is their staple. They make tortillas out of it. They make a bunch of stuff out of it. But there, I'm there, the bread of life is called a tortilla. I mean, they, they, it's not food. They can have a whole plate of food. No tortillas, that ain't a meal. They will sit there and not eat it, and it'll get cold until the flat things get there. So I'm looking, and I'm going, how can I explain it? I don't understand this, God. I was taught my whole life what just happened ain't supposed to happen. I was left thinking that was an equation to ensure that a miracle not happen. So let's think about that. Who's the onus in, in that equation? on us isn't it and so we take on this pressure and whether no matter what we believe about the power of God and, and, and faith and grace and no matter how much we tell ourselves, I don't have to work for anything in these subtleties they get twisted in our mind to say it really is up to me somehow some way do you see that and God said, whatever it is you have in the moment that he asks, it's enough. And so, I'm looking at the corn seeds, I'm looking at the thing, this idols, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and then it hit me. Oh my gosh. He changed my whole paradigm. So y'all said it. You said the mustard seed thing. Matthew chapter 17. So I said, let me show you something. Renato is this guy's name. So let me show you something. I got my Bible out. I showed him where God gives everybody faith. Romans 12. Then I went to Matthew 17. Faith like a mustard seed. And so I told him, faith works like a seed. Faith is a seed. Dynamically, it has seed-like properties. As a matter of fact, God has given us agriculture and seeds in which we can, so that we can understand this concept. Then I took him to Mark, chapter, I think it's chapter 3 or 4 or 2, somewhere in there, where Jesus gives two parables back to back, and he says, the kingdom of God is like, and what he explains is the agricultural process. You plant for a while, you don't see anything, then it germinates, and then the stem shoots up, and then it grows, and then in a minute, there'll be a harvest. The kingdom of God is like. What does that mean when Jesus, we should pay attention. Dynamically, intrinsically, the whole kingdom works with these ideas. And you see, that man understands planting intending and harvesting because he lives by what he's able to grow and I knew he would get it I said can I have one of your seeds so he said sure 
I put the corn seed in my hand. I took my knife out. I cut it into four pieces. I said, if I go, if I go plant those four pieces right there, am I going to get four corn plants? He said, no, brother. I said, how come? He said, because you ruined the seed. I said, why did I ruin the seed? Because you divided it. He didn't say you cut it up. They don't, they don't say that in Spanish. Dividió la semilla. And that means to, to us, we would translate that, cut it up. But really, what he said has more revelation impregnated with it. You divided your seed. You divided the seed. I said, yeah, that's right. I'm looking at all of his idols. And you see, what they do with their idols is each idol has a particular function. Mary has a particular function. Joseph has a particular function. Saint Death, you know, the Grim Reaper, that's an idol in Mexico. It has a function. Prostitutes have an idol. Every profession has an idol. Isn't that sad, isn't it? And what they do is, if you're a mechanic, there's an idol for you. You go pray to the, the idol mechanic. You want him to bless your bill. If you're a carpenter, that's how it works. The cross means something. I said, and so what they're doing is they have to have enough idols to cover all the categories of things that will crop up in their life as needs. But there's a suite of them that if they get in a big problem, they'll go, they apply some of their faith to Mary and some of their faith to San Juan Caballero and some of their faith to this one and that one and the other one, hoping that by the composite of their faith, somebody will hit. Now look here, that may work with your Merrill Lynch account, diversification, but it does not work with God. God's kingdom economy works with all your eggs in one basket, his basket. And so you see, faith is not about amount, but it is about percentage. And everybody's empowered right now to offer whatever percentage of your faith to Jesus that you decide to. You can give him 10% of it. You can trust in God 10% and then trust 90% in something else, 50%. You can, you can flop it around and give him 90, 90% or 95%. But do you know what happens? A seed is an extraordinary thing. A seed has a shell around it that is a perfect protection for that seed that will allow it to keep some of it for thousands of years. You know, they busted into some pyramids and they found wheat that was 3,000 years old. They planted it and it germinated. But if you break that shell, it cracks open. You know what happens when it cracks open? Oxygen begins to penetrate what's on the inside. The seed undergoes oxidative stress. So that's why whole wheat with the wheat germ oil in it, goes rancid if you grind it and don't make it into something 
right away. Oxidative stress bombards it and it ruins. But with weed, if you crack it open, you lose within 72 hours, you lose 78% of the nutritive value of what's in the wheat. So if you have 90% of your seed intact and you crack off 10% and hold it in reserve for something else, can it work? Is that not equal ruin to the seed? So what God wants is all. That's all he wants. It's just all of whatever you have. Anybody right now has that ability. How many of you, how many of you can sort of prepare yourself for the unknown that's coming? Nobody. So would it be very fair that if I had to go through this equation to get ever increasing greater amounts of faith and if we think that's more faith equals bigger miracle, that's really kind of how we look at it, isn't it? Well, Renato was a pretty big miracle. I didn't have about, I had about that much. So how does that work? And I know God, God wanted to touch him because of his compassion, but he wanted to do something in me. And the reason he wanted to do it in me because he knew I was going to need to come stand here one day. And it's like an, it's like an overboard real-life graphic example that I have. You can't knock me off this now with a bat. I know it's right. I have felt... The fire of God, I've looked at my skin thinking it's going to melt off. It's so real on me and so painful. I've had raw voltage run through my body. And touch people, man, dramatic, amazing. And I've had times, more times than not, we were talking about this this morning, where I'm just tired and I got a bad attitude. And I don't want to be in the village. And I don't want to eat this food. It's I had to eat. I've eaten a million bowls of food that I hate. I don't like it. It does not taste good to me. My definition of what is, you know, I've gotten more picky. Mama taught me to eat what's put in front of me. And that's good. That helped me on the mission field. I'm just sitting there grumbling. And I'm not advocating a bad attitude. But what I'm telling you is this. I've had a bad attitude, felt disconnected with God, feel absolutely nothing, and have God do the same level of extraordinary in somebody else's life. Happened just the other day. I'm really tired. We've been traveling. We've been, Audrey and I have been traveling since February, and I don't know how many miles I've driven in my ministry just in, in the United States. It's, it's well over a million miles to preach the gospel, and that's part of what's wrong with my throat. So I'm tired. We're in this, in this little church and it's a new thing and we're expanding and we're growing. And there was 20 people there. And I was like, and I'm, I'm not, I don't care. I don't care who it is. My ever-loving joy is to sit in some dark hut with one person who I'm reasoning with them over the condition of their soul or they just got saved and I get to talk to them about Jesus. So I'm not about numbers. I don't care. 
I preached to thousands. I preached to one with the same vigor. But that morning I was like, I'm tired. My voice is, I can, I'm, I'm, this could be the last day that I could ever speak again. For what? For who? This is the other day. Did an altar call. Two people came up. I don't feel nothing. And I'm trying to be positive and I'm trying to remember the love tackling that Dr. Timothy Johns gave me on his porch. And I'm trying to be encouraged and everything. And this lady, she comes up. She was about in her 50s. Audrey, you know, Audrey, she never has a bad, well, I don't know. Her bad days look like my best days. Let's put it that way. She locked onto her. And I'm like, we need, that's right. You need to straighten your stinking attitude up. And you get over there and pray for her like you're supposed to, boy. So we walked over there, prayed for her. She was deaf in one ear, and she'd been born that way. I'm tired. I don't feel nothing. You got that right. Is it all right if I'm real? Is that okay? Please. Yes. I'm not God's man of power for the hour. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. <laughs> I'm not the great white hope either. That's a missionary, mission field thing. Man, the Lord laid her down on the carpet. Pastor called us the next day. That lady I prayed for, she's jumping up and down hysterical. She was cold stone deaf in her ear from birth, and Jesus opened her ear that morning. It ain't about what we feel because it's not on us. That's right. Thank you, Jesus. I've fought a bunch of battles. I've gotten what I wanted, and I've fought a bunch of battles that I've lost. I don't like losing, but they don't have anything to do with anything. What you have is enough. Everybody say, what you have is enough. And I, wanna, I feel like I need to address this one last thing. It's a short point. You know when Moses had his encounter with the burning bush? How many of you like manifestations? We, were just, we just had some. I love them. They're awesome. But there's a twisting that can happen in our thinking that goes along with this and we think, boy, if I can just have a big enough encounter, it will erase my weakness. I believe in deliverance. We were just talking about that. I believe in the touch of heaven. But Moses, he's a pretty distinctive character, don't you think? And he had a pretty incredible encounter with God, didn't he? First of all, he was out there for 40 years messing around with stinking sheep on the backside of the desert after coming from the most affluent, advanced society on earth. Highly educated, he's out there hiding. Boy, he probably felt really encouraged, don't you think? Oh, I'm in Genesis. Real quick. You got to see this one thing. Moses gets in this arguing. He's arguing with God. God says, I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. Uh, that's the worst thing I do, God. I, I, 
my tongue doesn't work, I'm not articulate, I can't do it. What if they don't listen to me? Okay, if they won't listen to you, pick up that stick right there. Throw it down on the ground. <laughs> Try that if they don't listen to you. Okay, well, that's not good enough. What if? What if they don't listen? What if they don't listen? What if they don't listen? Moses is saying, I'm a failure. 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 I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Finally, God got aggravated with him. He got mad at him. Okay, fine. There's your brother. I'll use both of you together, but you're still the one. God can take our honesty. But I want you to listen to this. So they're going back and forth in this tussling match. And Moses said to the Lord, Oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. You see, he didn't take his weakness away. He used him with his weakness. This is one of those things where, again, God is saying, Your little is enough. Everybody say that. My little is enough. How could he call Gideon a mighty warrior? He didn't feel like a mighty warrior. God saw him different than Gideon saw himself. As a matter of fact, it's a very great gift to us, our weaknesses. How does Paul say it? In my weakness, he is proved to be strong. Because really, it is about Jesus. We had this guy that raised the dead one time. He was going to pray for this little boy. And he said, Lord, I doubt. I have doubt. And the Lord spoke right back to him. It's just a simple Indian, not a simple, it's just a simple village dweller. God spoke back to him and he said, Who are you going to be asking? Well, that's a strange question. Well, I'm going to be asking you, God. Who are you going to be asking for help? I'm going to be asking you for help. That's right, son. You're going to ask me. I don't have any doubt. And he went, that's right. Of course God doesn't doubt. I mean, that just makes sense, right? He went over there, prayed for that little boy for an hour, got up from the dead. Your little is enough. Your little is enough. Everybody say, my little is enough. In my weakness, say that, in my weakness. He is strong. What that means is, can we ever have enough strength anyway if we feel our strongest, if we feel our most confident? Is that strong enough to do anything? You know, what I think about God doesn't change his nature at all. But what he thinks about us is incredibly transformative to our nature. You know the story of Oprah Winfrey? You know why she started her own religion? You know she started her own religion, right? She used to be a Baptist. She was sitting... And a service, and this preacher was banging on the pulpit, preaching about how God is jealous. And that's true. 
The scripture says God is jealous. But the way it spun in her through her filter, God is jealous of me. I, I ain't, I'm not going to serve a God like that. And she turned her back on God. There are atheists in the world who see things that, that don't make sense to them, the existence of evil, that whole question, how could God let that happen, all that. They turn their back on God. Their thoughts about God do not change God's nature at all. God is utterly self-determined. He is self-existent. He's not concerned about the quality of his nature. He's concerned about a relationship with us and his thoughts that are coming to us. We're all twisted up. We don't see clear. And this is just one example. What we need to do is say, Jesus, don't let us stay in our corner over here and think we got we got our answer about whatever subject it is. Because the enemy has got 6,000 years of experience at twisting things and affecting our thinking. Please don't hear what I have to say and think that I am saying that it's not good to seek God or that our faith growing is a bad thing or that it's not necessary or that doubt is a good thing. You don't, I'm not leaving you with that idea, am I? Who we are right now, where we are right now, is enough for whatever will arise or is in your life right And if there's things that you're dealing with, come up here. I just want to pray with you. And I, I want faith to be released. Does this, is this helpful? I need some feedback. I'm like stuck out on a limb here. Positive or negative? And you know what we found out? We found out in Mexico that the more we can clarify things and the more we can get people to engage with Jesus, but in a way that everything's all about Jesus and His engagement and His energizing and His empowerment in them, extraordinary things happen. Don't trust Mary, trust Jesus. Don't trust doctors, trust Jesus. Don't, don't, don't trust the economy, trust Jesus. So if you, if you just want to, let me just pray for you corporately. Father, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, I ask that you walk person to person and mind to mind and heart to heart and soul to soul and you just do your work Lord please transcend my limited ability to communicate what it is that's so deeply on your heart set your people free Lord Lord 
untwist, restore and rejuvenate. Beat back the lies of the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.